Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. I'm Jill Enders, flying solo. Joe Cordell is not here with us today, but we're bringing back a very popular guest. You all know and love him, David A. Smith. He's the author of It's About Time. He's also a senior living expert and the co-founder and continues to manage the Gatesworth communities here in St. Louis. Welcome, David. So glad to have you back. Thank you, Jill. It's good to be back again. And before we get to our topic, we've got some news, Mm. some really good news for you. You have a new member of your family. Yes, a new puppy, a a Portuguese water dog that's chocolate with white little fluffy stuff. She's 16 weeks old and arrived last night. So how was it your my first, first night? My first night with my first puppy. You're very I know and this is your first puppy dog. Yes, first puppy dog. And do you love it or what? Oh, I learned what puppy love actually means. All these years I thought I knew, but now it's burned in. Mhm. There's nothing like it. They love you unconditionally. Nothing like it and nothing like a puppy to bring you into the present and out of your own ego. Right. Right. Yeah, and and they love us unconditionally, and that's what's so wonderful about that relationship. You have a new dog as well. I do, unexpectedly. So, quick story. Um, Last weekend, my daughter and I were driving home. We pulled into our subdivision, and this puppy runs in front of our vehicle, and we stop, and it's a beagle-puppy mix, and we get out of the car. My daughter starts walking to her and she runs right to her, picks her up. We take her home and we later brought her up to our local police department to have her, you know, scan for a microchip, no microchip. And so we thought, well, we'll just keep her. And the police department posted something on their website. We posted something on Nextdoor. Nobody has claimed her so far. So it looks like she's going to be our dog. And we named her Angel. Angel, Mm -hmm. go from the sky. Yes, that's what it seems like. It really does. Oh, such a sweetheart. And she gets along so well with cuddles. They've just really bonded. So what was it like the first night having a pup? Did she keep you up all night? Well, I have raised uh, two kids of my own and helped raise three more. So, um, yes. They do. Yes, she definitely was about four hours straight. Oh, my goodness. Of rebellion, trying to get into the bed. And I finally succumbed. I confess here fully vulnerable i understand that first night made four hours mm-hmm. reminded me of one of my kids yeah yeah at the bedroom door and so you've got to worry about you know them chewing up stuff potty training all i mean it's really like having a little kid yeah getting into things you know when i first built the gatesworth i was 35 years old and i've looked back and said the best thing i had going for me is i had no idea what to expect mm-hmm. no one had actually ever done it before had i known i never would have done it yeah yeah i kind of feel the same way about a puppy right well congratulations you're a new doggy daddy for thank the first you. time thank you and today we are talking about david's book you've heard us mention it before it's about time but we've never really focused on david's book with any of our shows so it is about time wouldn't you say it's 
Good time for me. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. So, David, what inspired you to write this book? So, that's a great question. And actually, if anyone who's ever written a book know that, knows that it takes a lot of inspiration to keep you going. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of coaching and training with the group that I worked with was all about your motivation and your inspiration. So I love senior housing. Mm-hmm. And while I understand it's not for everyone, um, right now there's such a small group of people that are able to um, actually make a, a logical and a reasonable decision about whether it makes sense to move or not because of huge emotional resistance. Right. So part of what inspired me was the fact that my parents in their mid-70s moved together into our community my mom was 75. She's 97 next month. Oh, God love and her. And still lives there. And the fact that my mom and dad moved together at a time when they didn't have to because of any health crisis, but they made the choice. Right. Um, I've seen the benefits that it has both for residents as well as for their family members, me included. I'm a, That's where my mom lives. Um, and they're tremendous. So I would love to see us expand us as a senior living industry, right? There's mm-hmm. thousands of um, providers and communities now around the country, and we're just not doing as well as we could do. So part of the inspiration for the book was to take what I had learned in the field and as a developer and as a third-party consultant, hands-on leasing counselor, and sort of put it all together to try to help all of us that are involved make it easier for someone to say yes. Yeah, yeah. How long did it take you to write it? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. The actual writing from the time I started an outline to when the book arrived was about 18 months. Mm -hmm. The last six months of that is getting the graphics and the cover and the final uh, professional editing and p- actual publishing and right. printing and working out with Amazon. So it took about a year. But really, when I thought about that, I started working on this book when I wrote my first article back in the early 1990s, uh-huh. published peer-reviewed research, studied the sales process, presented at national conferences, always new material, um, and always working towards trying to figure out How can I teach and train other people to do this? And the book really helped fill in a lot of gaps to be able to talk through not only how did I learn this, where did it come from, but how can you actually use it in a practical sense. So it was written originally for senior housing professionals to try to help them do a better job at capturing people who would benefit. And if I could just... For a minute. No, it's mine. No, ah. no you gave me the signed I copy already. I did give you a copy, But, didn't I? you know, I, I imagine, you know, you learned even more when you were writing the book because you had to interview so many and do research. Yeah. So what happened was just leading up to actually writing the book, I also had a stint um, 
as the lead professor at the Erickson School of Aging, had a postgraduate program in mm-hmm. focus on sales and marketing for senior housing. And in the context of that program, as well as one conference that I went to every year, um, where the guy who ran the conference said, David, you can... I'll have a place for you to present anytime you want, as long as you have new material that you've never presented to anyone else before. So between the teaching at the at the uh, university right. level and presenting at the conference, I was constantly updating material. The writing of the book was in part reorganizing, clarifying some general principles that I had done presentations on or written about and sort of organizing it. Yeah. I think that's what I learned in writing the book is a simpler way of thinking about it. Right. And you are going to read us a passage. Oh. Give us a sneak peek for those yeah. who haven't read the book, and it's very good. I just wanted a little bit to talk about, you know, most of this generation and many of our of your audience probably have some preconceived notions from their own personal history and their past as to what senior housing, what's what nursing homes look like, mm-hmm. and by extension, have a lot of fear and negative preconceived notions about the generation of places that's being built now, right. um, which really no longer fits. So what I'm thinking about is a newer generation of communities that are very residentially oriented, that give way to preferences that individuals have, whether it's the activities or the food or the time of day. And Within those kinds of communities, of which there are now thousands, today in the U.S. and Canada, the combination of residential-style facilities, excellent programming and amenities, and the emphasis on resident choice has resulted in very high resident satisfaction at the typical senior living community. So those are the communities that I'm talking about. According to this, a study by the ASHA and Promatura, most residents feel the overall quality and emotional tone of their life benefit based on moving into communities. More specifically, compared to their counterparts, so they took 10 or 15 different the researchers, factors, social economic, median price of homes in the neighborhood, um, right. level of college or education, and they matched people who lived in uh, senior community with their counterparts who lived outside. And what they found is that residents of senior living communities are more likely than their otherwise matched stay-at-home counterparts to be happy with their daily lives. Right. And I can see that makes sense because, you know, how do, how do you say it? Birds of a feather flock together. And sure, when they make that transition, they want to live around people that are like them, I guess you could say. Mm. Maybe, although there's a wide, like like them in the sense that they're willing to confront the vulnerable stage of life that they're in, look it in the eye and say, there's still a piece of me who I've always been, my aspirational self, right. that I'm not giving up yet just because age has encroached into my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the, we call, I call those people dragons. Dragons? Okay, yeah. why is that? I don't know. They have a dragon spirit. It's indefatigable. They're looking old age in the eye and spitting in their face and just saying, I'm I like that. Get dressed up, come down to dinner, make new friends, uh-huh. learn new things. Um, yeah, just continue to engage in life like I always have. Right, right. You know, one of my favorite parts of your book was the case study of Mitch. I love that because he's so represented 
so many seniors in terms of their resistance for the transition. And, you know, and also how it helped you change how, change your approach yeah. with seniors. So tell us a little bit about Mitch. Mitch was, had a lot of health problems. and Mitch, first of all, was this spunky 90-year-old guy, um, very humble, very unassuming, um, a completely unwarranted, just accidental hero. Mm-hmm. Literally in World, World War, War II, II he had right. two different incidents. They'd bring him out on Veterans Day. He showed me a scrapbook full of his um, images that he had collected from no- local newspaper articles and local TV. Had a scrapbook going. Had a, had a scrapbook going. So he was a hero. He was a man's man, but very sociable. Loved to play gin rummy. Had a little poodle named Molly, a black uh-huh. little poodle that followed him around. Um, he had gone through a lot of loss in his life, like many people who are 90 year, his years old have. His wife, of course. Well, the most recent was his wife, and uh, both his wife, and he had lost a daughter and a son. Wow. Daughter and son to um, cancer, and his wife, I believe, to diabetes. And all three of them, unfortunately, wound up in long-term care facilities, skilled nursing facilities. Oh. And that really colored you know, his thoughts about moving himself. Very, very proud. He moved in. He promised his wife while they were still living on the farm that on her demise that he would take care of their daughter, their youngest daughter. Moved in with her and her husband. First, he built a complete right. suite for himself. Right. Fenced in the yard so Molly would have a place to run. And he's in his 90s. He's in his 90s. Oh, my goodness. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And then he moves into this suite and... Um, his daughter and her husband went off um, some international charitable foundation and were constantly traveling. So he'd be by himself and he'd have TV dinners and mm-hmm. pretty lonely he, other than his dog. And then he had a whole series of um, difficulties. He was, after I met him, he had only recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was noticing he, he was having some memory issues um but what really got him he had copd and emphysema yeah so he was tied to oxygen much of the time he um, had severe arthritis so he had this whole cocktail of medications that he had to try to orchestrate himself i don't know if you try ever tried to orchestrate your medications on different days when mostly what you're doing is watching tv but cecil had a system he had this little bitty notebook he had a pencil like we used to have in grade school. Uh-huh. No eraser, just like a half pencil. Oh, right, two. right. Those, yeah, yeah and those he, little short little ones. notebook with his arthritic hands, he would write down what time he was supposed to take which medicine or which nebulizer. Uh-huh. And if you looked at him logically, you would say, oh, my God, man, what are you doing? Yeah. You're the most sociable guy in the universe. You're here by yourself. You're isolated. You're alone. Um, and you'd be right. You know, you're at risk every time you take your medication of forgetting to write it down or doing it. Oh, he used an egg timer. An egg timer. Yeah, that's how he would time the in-between when he needed his nebulizer treatments. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he was a character, and he was yeah. really good at it and very sociable. But it just didn't make a lot of sense, the life that he was trying to lead. And so my first attempt with Mitch, um, you know, I have a background of selling residential real estate. Right. And I was pretty good at it, um, is to try to tell him, Mitch, here's all the things that are wrong with you. 
And if you were here, you wouldn't be isolated. You'd have a chance for new social relationships. And Mitch, if you were here, we'd have somebody that could help purchase and organize and administer your medications. You know, Mitch, if you came here, we could, and I would just match up all of his problems and difficulties with solutions. Well, I tried that. It didn't really work. Mm-mm. What what happens to senior adults who are in this situation of being so vulnerable on every front that when you try to suggest what the solution is, any more than if you do it with somebody who's in a bad relationship or tell one of your kids what you think about who they're dating right. or try to get somebody to smoke stopping cigarettes, it's called the writing reflex. Yeah, and we, it's only going to make it more attractive to that person. Well, and make them more resistant. Yeah, yeah. More resistant to change, to acknowledging and changing the behavior. So what I learned after research and study of what worked when I interacted with people and engaged with people, people who I thought was really good, I just observed and field tested mm-hmm. and then came up with hypothesis and different theories that we tested over and over again uh, over time. So now with Mitch, um, you said he was pretty happy and upbeat, but I can imagine, you know, the isolation when his daughter and son-in-law were traveling. He Did he get depressed, would you say, ever, or lonely? And, you know, ultimately, did that have a, an impact on his already existing health problems? Yeah, yes and yes. He did get depressed and lonely, although he was, again, a man's man. And in that generation, you didn't often admit vulnerability. No, no, you um, didn't. So you could see a and World War II vet? Oh, no way. And his daughter and his son-in-law certainly mentioned that that was among his you know, difficulties in getting through is that he's just become isolated and lonely. And he was also just a very sociable guy. So when I found Mitch, he was in this conundrum, this ambivalence. You know, and on the one hand, he doesn't want to move yet. He feels like staying there really is helping to protect and take care of his daughter. His even daughter, his he daughter, felt heroic. He felt very heroic yeah. by doing that. And he felt like um, he was promised his wife he would provide for his daughter. He lost a daughter and a son. Mm. And this was his last surviving. So you've got that on top of it. Yeah, and he's yeah. just holding on for dear life. You know, and on the other hand, he knows very well he can't stay. So I don't want to move. I just can't stay. So now his daughter was supportive of, you know, of your him epi- moving. Yeah, he, yeah, she actually was the one, as this is many times the case, she actually was the one that reached out to the community I was working with at the time. Okay. And ultimately what happened was he didn't move. No, he didn't move. He looked like he got really close, and then he just kind of dug in his heels, and we got stuck and weren't sure what to do with him. And at the time, I was reading, um, I had studied a lot in terms of sales. I'd done residential Mm -hmm. real estate sales, and I studied the great salespeople um, of the time. Brian Tracy was one of my heroes, the Mm -hmm. psychology of sales, as well as Neil Rackham. But I I wound up... um, listening to reading a book and then listening maybe to um, a TED Talk and got introduced to um, the concept of motivational interviewing and stages of readiness for change. And it's a questioning technique that simply put is, I call it going with the skid. Some people call it reverse psychology. But when you have somebody who has ambivalence, 
whichever side of the argument you take, you promote, you show interest in, you question, right? right? We naturally, uh, as humans, argue the other side in our head. Right. That makes sense. So when you sell, you're, you're trying to put something into someone. You're trying to take the information that you have and convince and persuade. And 100%, you'd be 100% accurate with Mitch. His life would be better off socially, nutritionally, safety, in every aspect. Right, health, yeah. But he's not, we're not doing this logically. It's all emotion, and he's heavily resistant. So the way to get him to help see his own situation better is to go with the skid. Figure out what Mitch really values, what's near and dear to him. So he's the patriarch of the family. He's got this heroic, patriotic sort of uh, get the job done. When he tells his war stories, um, you can just hear it in his voice in terms of how he went about and was in the middle of these situations where he had to just stand up and be counted for everybody else. And he did several on several different occasions. So if you were going to talk to, say, Mitch today or someone like Mitch, how would your approach change exactly? Kind of give us a play-by-play. Okay, sure. And in the book, I do it in great detail. Right, right. But the basic idea is to accept the premise. In other words, let's not think that all of the pain, the suffering, the disconnect, the identity, sense of loss of identity and huge sense of loss that people in Mitch's situation have. After all, their bodies are usually failing in one way or another. They're facing old age and and possible death. They're facing the death of their friends and their family. They've lost a sense of authority in the community. Maybe they've given up a career or their career's come to an end. And so there's this tremendous sense of loss. And against that loss, the only power that many people feel they have to come back with is to be able to say no. Mm-hmm. And so when Mitch thinks about moving, his natural reaction to a significant life change, right? One where he has to sort of give up. He knows who he is in the situation he's in. Yeah. But who will he be if he moves? Right. And... I think we see that more with men than women, don't we? With we we see um, because with we every, often with say every men... person there's a there's an aspirational self, right? So I happen to think of it in the female version as a ballerina, and in a male version as a war hero. But it could be anything, whoever your sure. hero is. Sure, but you know we often hear that men really identify with their jobs. Their whole identity often is in their jobs, and it sounds like in this case, you know, Mitch was used to being in charge, and he felt, you know, if he made this change in his life, he may not be in charge. And that's not true, though. But you can see where he well, it feels was, like it, especially given yes. his associations with skilled nursing. And right. Why do people go to skilled nursing? It's usually some shameful or disparaging thing. They're mm-hmm. too poor to go in with family, or too sick or mentally ill or right. something's wrong with you is the assumption. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about um, understanding. So, so to help Mitch, okay, just for another minute, um, go to where he is. Acknowledge the grief and the loss. Instead of trying to say, I have a product over here that's a two-bedroom apartment with a den and gray countertops that's going to solve your grieving over all the loss you've had, acknowledge the loss. 
seek affirmation, seek stories in terms of what, where the person came from, who they are, because that's where the life stage are, is where they are now. Um, David Soli teaches us about that. Yeah. But help them through the process of creating their own legacy in terms of who they are, who they want to be. So it sounds like showing that person empathy. Yeah. But um, so a lot of people get to empathy over sympathy, right? Which right. is sympathy is feeling something so- about somebody. Feeling sorry for someone, yeah. basically. Empathy is feeling with, putting yourself feeling in with. their shoes. And that's really hard to do properly unless you understand what being them in their shoes mm-hmm. is. It's not that hard to figure out what being in their shoes is, but most of us tend to think about it as if I was in their shoes. True empathy is trying to understand who that person is and what it means based on their stories and their experience. And it's in the telling, it's in the drawing out. This is how I would treat Mitch differently. In drawing out that story of Mitch from Mitch that's where the power to help him make a change and overcome emotional resistance comes from. It's, okay. it's in the telling. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, he was such a wonderful case study. And um, is Mitch still with us, if I might ask? I lost track of Mitch. Lost track, okay. This was in, a, in uh, Oklahoma. Oh, in Oklahoma. In project okay. that I was working on, right. yeah, just after the Gatesworth. Okay. And I, I want you to talk about, and we've talked about this before, the developmental stages and, and how it applies to seniors and often can be compared to our adolescent years. Um, there are a number of um, psychologists who believe that we go through certain defined developmental stages. I believe Erickson was the first one to define those David Soley, who's a colleague and who's been involved somewhat in the senior living industry, went to the notion of developmental change. It's been pretty well accepted for some time that we go through certain changes in life where actually the structure of the brain changes, new pathways open up, and behavior and developmental drivers change. So two years old is the first one that all of us experience. And we have these beautiful toddlers at 18 months. We can't imagine not having God tricks us into wanting to have many, many more. And then all of a sudden they become brats who run around. And how do they express the conflict between I'm here, I'm Uh separate. It's all about me. It's all, well, I actually figured out there is a me. Uh-huh. Right. right. But right. when I figure out that there is a me and the me can't handle the situation and the environment that I put myself into, my language for expressing that is a tantrum. Uh-huh. Right? And how well does reason and logic do in dealing with a tantrum? Not well. Zero. Not well. The next time, the next big developmental change happens at adolescence. Again, the certain parts of our brain open up experientially. No, no, David. When adolescence, as a mom of two teenagers, their brains fall out. I have to say that. Okay, I'm bad. I'm bad. No, yeah. <laughs> so, I, again, I helped raise five. So you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yes. Uh, and there's nothing better to teach you about uh, developmental stage because that's like the two-year-old. Me, my parts of my brain are expanding and I'm exploring things that I never even knew were available to me. In right. That, right. But I am a separate person, separate from my family, my parents, my church, my whatever. I'm just me. Let's go figure out who that is. 
and yet at the same time reaching out to create this identity to acquire an ego, a sense of self, a purpose, uh, an identity, right? And at the same time running back to mom and dad to sleep on the floor, borrow the credit card and the car keys, Mm -hmm. right? Still, you're not ready to cut the apron string yet. You're not ready. No. You're not ready. And, And the language is often no in that situation. Right. Right. Yeah, or some kind of a challenge to authority. That's true, that rebellion. That rebellion. So um, the next stage really is sort of the in-between stage where we're trying to help our kids and trying to help our parents at the same time. That's sort of where the boomers are today. That's where you and I are. Mm-hmm. Prefrontal cortex is as strong as it ever gets. We multitask. Our identity is there. We know who we are, what we're doing in the world. We have lots of different areas of our lives that are compartmentalized and we're juggling. Yeah, balancing act. Balancing act, right. And then hopefully there's time for us at the end. Not always. At the end of the day. Yeah, hopefully, right. Hopefully, that's what we hope for. Yeah. Um, And then the last stage that solely defines starts in our 70s, mid to late 70s, where again, the front part of the brain shrinks so we can't multitask, we can't use logic and reason as well as we could. But other parts of the brain where we experience emotion and Mm -hmm. context and values open up. We used to call that wisdom. Oh, I like that. So I'm going to get older and get wiser. What happens is I'm able to look back across time and space. I can't do as well within a specific time and and space, but the way my mind is working because other parts of my brain are opening up, I can recontextualize love, betrayal, Mm -hmm. anger, joy across lots of time and space continuums to figure out what did this all mean? Who am I? And I can create, proactively create a personal legacy. So in this stage, loss is everywhere. And like Mitch, most of the people, most of us, when we hit 75, 80 years old, are suffering a great deal of loss. Oh, sure. A loss of control in every dimension. Loss of yourself with health problems. Loss of yourself, of your friends, right, and so forth. But on, so on the other hand, you're battling, trying to hold off, losing that identity that at two years old and a teenager and in midlife I was looking for. I got it, but I'm losing control of it. And in, instead of looking to build an identity, we try to build legacy. Okay. And that's sort of the developmental struggle, holding on to control while you still have some. At the same time, finding the time and the space and the emotional energy to figure out who was I. So that's where the resistance really comes in. The resistance is in letting go. Yeah. Yeah. Because what we're asking someone to do is almost counterintuitive. We're asking them to let go of the identity that they've had that still brings comfort and nostalgic sense of Mm -hmm. well-being, even though it doesn't fit anymore. Right. So... It's one more change and a big one. When someone does make the transition at that age... Yeah. What happens to their mindset then? Do they still have that mindset or does it start diminishing? Yeah, so I want to talk about this um, in the context of actually having residents read my book and prospects read my book. Right. But what I could tell you is, is that retrospectively, most of the people that I've talked to don't remember the experience. It's sort of, remind, I don't know what childbirth is like, except I've watched it. Right. Right. It's sort of like childbirth. You forget. 
that you mm-hmm. went through it. Although the people who were able to remember and recall what the transition was like from being afraid to overcoming them with their resistance were able to track the various stages and the language that we used to talk about it from the professional counselor perspective. Okay. Which was very validating. Wow. You know, it seems to me, and I've heard this, when people go to a a wonderful senior living community where they're around a lot of different people engaging in activities, it's almost like going back to high school. So does that change, you know, their outlook then? So in in many ways, it is like going back to high school. High school is the place where you really create an identity for yourself. Right, right, right. And it has to do with girls and girls and boys and girls and boys and boys and activities and ways of differentiating yourself. Well, that in a thriving community of any kind, that's going to happen, especially in a community of people that didn't previously know each other. Hmm. There's gossip. There's cliques. Oh, sure. There's really wonderful, incredible salt-of-the-earth people who cross over all those lines. Do you find that people, we were talking about birds of a feather flock together, but do you find people um, in these um, senior living communities, they start making friendships with people that they never did before in life? I mean, people that are so different than them that may have different, say, political or religious beliefs. Do you ever find that happening? Yeah, so I, um, I experience watching other people age as a removal of masks. Mm-hmm. And as people age, they tend, as we grow, we tend to build masks to defend sure. ourselves and present ourselves in different ways for different settings. As we age, I find we tend to lose a lot of those masks. Not everybody and not everyone at the same pace, but there's a commonality to it that I notice. So at the Gatesworth, for example, every year Passover and Easter occur relatively close to the sure. same time, like Christmas and, and Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And we have the same group of people. We have some group, some people who will only go to one or the other, but we have so many people who are just interested. And they'll go to the and other one, yeah, even though just, it's, it, it doesn't they'll fall cross, in line. cross tribe. Cross, cross, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's still some parochialism left, though. Yeah. But that's interesting. That really but is. But there's more cross-tribal than you would expect Yeah, amongst I, older people. Well, and I, I think it's got to do with um, the time we're living in now. You know, I, I think yeah. it would be more, it's probably more acceptable than, say, it would have been, you know, 20, even 20 years ago. So, very interesting. Different world. It is a different world, that's for sure. And your book has helped so many industry leaders and families who, you know, read your book, you know, how do I approach mom or dad about this subject? Because I know it's not going to probably go well. Yeah. So by, so I wrote, again, I wrote the book for senior housing professionals. And so there is some language and some lingo in there, although most of it's new to senior living professionals also. Yeah. Um, so I wrote with a lot of practical examples and Um, illustrations of conversations. It just requires spending more time with less people and approaching people empathically Mm -hmm. and with objectivity, giving up the result as to what they're going to do in order to be a good confidant, a good listener, a good counselor. Because I assume nobody is going to move into senior living, into senior housing, unless they need it. Right. So 
if somebody is already, there's no way to really convince or persuade someone that they need it if they don't. True. The idea is to simply, if they're inquiring, which is a very unusual thing among older adults to inquire about senior housing, there's already something going on and I need to just be clouseau and figure out what it is. Yeah. Pink Panther, just be curious. Yeah. So, David, you know, we've been talking about how your book um, has helped others. Can you um, kind of paint, you know, a broader picture of that? What does that look like? Sure. So that's been the most rewarding part to me, is that in terms of my own personal legacy, I was able to take all the disparate things that I had taught and trained, weave them into a consistent, uh, clear narrative that other people could use. And then with the... um, development um, of Sherpa, a CRM, SaaS-based CRM that I did with my partner and co-founder, Alex Fisher, we took that theory and made it into a practical tool um, that somebody who was actually working with older adults in this situation could use every day. We called that Sherpa. And for those who aren't familiar with Sherpa, can you explain Sure, Sherpa is more details yeah, on that. Sherpa is a uh, web-based uh, program that um, allows you to keep track of people who have inquired about your senior living community. Okay. But the way that it keeps track of people is completely consistent with the principles of um, psychology, the psychology of change, and the psychology of stages of readiness for change. Okay. And so, for each prospect, what we're really doing is trying to make it easy for the um, leasing counselors in various communities to learn the process and be rewarded for and have data around how well they actually get a profile of the person. So the simplest way to think of Sherpa is a reverse dating site. Mm. I love it. I love it. But it's a great way to monitor. Yeah, but so imagine instead in a dating site, I create, you create an avatar and we send it out to go, my my avatar hopefully is going to meet your avatar. In Sherpa, I create your avatar. I create the profile of you. Okay, so it is reversed. Yes, and the only way that I know how to create that profile of you is to draw it out of you with questions Mm -hmm. and curiosity and intention. And then I create this profile. And the profile includes photographs, documents, a picture of where you live, who you are, who you used to be, and goes through all the key elements that go into the psychology of change and lays it out within a system. And then counts and tracks how much time do you spend with each prospect because it's about time is more than a double entendre, but it is a double entendre. And we measure what's called time in the selling zone. And we found, not surprisingly, the more of it you spend, the better you do in terms of your results. Believe it or not, first time anyone's ever done that in terms of measuring sales, performance, and effectiveness. But it just makes a lot of sense, right? If you want to help your best friend through an emotionally traumatic decision, you have to put the time in. Sounds like it's a really effective tool for those in this industry. It is. And actually, today, there was just a public notification that Chirpa, which uh, Alex and I started in 2014, uh-huh. was just merged into another large uh, computer software program for senior housing. And it's going to really enlarge and expose much more of the industry, probably as many as 10,000 senior housing wow. professionals to prospect-centered selling 
the theoretical foundation that we outlined in the book. Okay. Um, so it's expanding it every day. Yeah. pretty significantly. Very significantly. Right. Yeah. Good day that's, for older adults and the people who try to help yes, them. Yes, it is. Decide. Well, that's something to celebrate. Yeah. That and your new pup. That and the new pup. And the book, I just want to mention this. Again, I wrote the book for senior housing professionals. But then, almost on a whim, when I first got the copies of the book, um, I gave it to some of our residents at the Gatesworth and some of their family members. And they read the book, and I was blown away by how they reacted and how they saw themselves in the book, in mm. the characters, in the stages, in the examples of Mitch and other people that we talk sure. about. Because um, Mitch, poster child. Yeah, and then I started giving the book to prospective residents, people who were just coming in. It'd be like you coming in to buy a car and someone gives you a recipe for how they're going to try to sell you the car. Mm-hmm. It's a guidebook. Yeah. And it's incredible. And so the video that we have um, a link to for just a couple of minutes is some of those residents who read the book, their reaction and response to what they read. Why don't we take a look at that? I thought it was an absolutely wonderful book. It was just remarkable. The more I read, the more I realized how important it was, the marketing that you were doing to bring the maturing generations into these types of places. From an English teacher's point of view, uh be sure you're recording this now. Uh, I think it was well written. Um, Oh, I meant to say that uh, everything in this book validated why I'm here. It was written, it wasn't written for residents, it was written for professionals in the field. I was reading it as a non-professional in the field, but as a resident, someone who was affected by how the professionals treated me and, and so forth. And it made such sense. And every process, every step along the way in the course of the book, um, I found I could see myself there. You know, questions like, uh, rather than all the statistics, to establish a relationship with a client and like, uh, what are they or you looking for for the rest of your life? You know, asking questions to learn what to let the client kind of tell you rather than you telling the client. It's better ask questions of the client. Right, and because that's what's more important. Not what you said, not what you don't start out with what you have to offer. I gotta find out what it is you need and wish and and you do that by asking questions. I was first impressed with the, your use of examples. You were talking about uh, people and you gave them a name and the situation and who were prospects for moving into a senior residence. And that was done so well. It's well written, it's clear. It's, uh, as Martha said, it has examples. So there's a sort of a liveliness about this. It's not just a textbook, a how-to textbook. It's much more than that. That says it all right there, David. It really does. 
I'm losing control. <laughs> yeah. So from the little one who's first exploring that there is me, uh-huh. to the teenager who's saying, how far can I go? To us, where we say, oh my God, who can keep track of all this? Uh-huh. To mom who's saying, oh shit, now I'm losing control. <laughs> it's all the way back around full circle. It It really is. It really is. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and you Likewise, better, thank you. We hope to have you back. Um, you always provide us a wealth of information, and we had something fun, too, hearing about your pups. So yeah. we want to get an update on how... Now, what kind of dog is that again? Uh, Portuguese water dog. I don't think I've ever heard of that type of dog. Justin, have you heard of that dog? Uh, no, I have not. It's, it's a, a new one to me. It's yeah. a hypoallergenic alternative to a doodle. Oh, okay. It's a pure breed. A pure, yes, of course. Okay. Anyway, I had a friend that had one and showed it at Westminster. Oh, really? And actually won an award, and I thought it was a cool dog, and the Obamas had two of them. Oh, okay. Oh, and that, Sonny. Yes, yes. All right. I do know. That really popularized Yeah. Them. Well, thank you for coming on mm. and, and talking about your wonderful book. Everyone, I very highly recommend you get It's About Time by David A. Smith. And where can they find that book? Wherever books are sold? Yeah, you can find it on Amazon. Amazon. Or, um, audiobooks. Okay. Okay, great. Well, thank you again for joining us. That's been another episode of Life's Third Act. Until next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.